Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are with episode 11 of the principles of performance podcast i'm your host eric degatti along with my partner in crime mike perry and we have a very special guest we continue to luck out with our guests here and in, in the start of our show here mike we have dr greg rose with us good friend of ours who is a board certified doctor chiropractic holds an undergraduate degree in engineering from university of maryland specializes in 3d biomechanics strength and conditioning manual therapy rehab nutritional supplementation and therapeutic exercise as it relates to golf most people know him as a golf guy he's a co-host of golf fitness academy and co-founder of the titleist performance institute out at oceanside california which if you've not had the chance to go out there it is an experience um as well as on base university for baseball and softball and racket fit for tennis he's also a certified chiropractic sports practitioner and fellow in the international academy of clinical acupuncture you're gonna read all that stuff man yeah, I only got another about 45 minutes, Greg. Uh, utilizing his background in engineering combined with his expertise in the human body, Greg has helped pioneer a field of analyzing computerized 3D motion captures of the golf swing. And so uh, uh, I could go on and on, but Dr. Greg Rose, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I, I'm noticing the the ones on either side of your head. So the the, the one jerseys, and this is episode 11. I'm seeing a theme here. I'm, I, I should be excited to be number 11. Play that in the lottery, yes. I know yes, Mike, likes, it, Mike, Mike likes those ones on either side of you. Yes, you know, and in sports. case yeah. you don't remember who who those Super Bowl jerseys are from, they are from beating the New England Patriots twice. So how much did you pay for those off of eBay? <laughs> <laughs> no All one's right, let, one. Let's be honest. No one on the team is number one. So you've got that. You've got custom jerseys. I'm surprised they don't say Degatti on the back. <laughs> that would have been extra. I, 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 I maxed out the budget on that. So... Um, Let's 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 not waste our time squabbling here, Perry. We could do that all day. Let's talk about Dr. Greg Rhodes because unfortunately, uh, I'm a red. I'm a, I should say Redskin. I'm a Commanders fan, which uh, that's where I grew up with. So I have nothing to brag about. But go ahead, keep going. Not for a long time. <laughs> but here's a, here's something that that I, I you know to, that you definitely can brag about, Greg. It's been a very interesting journey that I don't think a lot of people know about. They kind of see you know, where you are now with TPI, but, you know, kind of going from being an engineer to a chiropractor to golf fitness to starting TPI and then now on base and racket foot, you know. You never know what you're going to be when you grow up. That's the bottom and, line. And so it's not only a very interesting journey, but I think it's a, it, you know, uh, to kind of, um, you know, tell you how, you know, in terms of what I look at as a true American success story in terms of how you've kind of come from all those different places and, and gotten to where you are. So kind of walk us through how someone goes from an engineer to where you are now. Well, I appreciate that, buddy. But, uh, you know, I feel like 
you never, like I said, you never know what you're going to be when you grow up and you have to take opportunities that seem exciting. And I, and I, you know, I've always felt that if you're going to be successful, you have to outwork your competition. I, you know, some people get lucky and hit the lottery, but most people don't. And I always say the people that are successful have worked their tail off. I know both of you guys have worked your butt off. And I, I felt like from an early age that if I was going to, if I was going to be successful, I had to work really hard. And for me to work really hard, I didn't want it to be work. I wanted it to be fun. Right. So I felt like the most important thing in life is to do something you love because then you can outwork anybody because it's not work. And when I went to engineering, it was my dad was in the construction world and he was like, you know, engineers are what we pay the most. It'd be great if you were an engineer. So I was like, okay, pops, I'll go, I'll go be an engineer. And I went in there and after the first year, I realized this is definitely not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. So, uh, it was, it was, um, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was a waste of time because engineering teaches you how to think, put systems down on paper, make sure they can go through. And it was like, you know, when you take a test in engineering, it was so crazy. It was like, they would teach you how to build a roof. Right. And then you go in and take a test and they'd say, okay, you're going to build a roof, but now there's going to be 40 feet of snow and it's in Alaska. And you're like, well, we never looked at snow loads. And they're like, I just want to see, write it down how you think you would figure this out. So there was no right answer because we didn't know the answer. They just wanted to see your logic. So to me, it was frustrating, but you'll see it. I mean, I use that every day in my career now, right? So I, I decided uh, in my junior year that uh, I wanted to do something different, decided to go into medicine, got my pre-med minor, graduated engineering from University of Maryland, went off to chiropractic school and chiropractic school was the complete opposite. It was kind of, sorry, you can hear my dogs in the background. <laughs> Apologize for that. But um, the uh, in, uh, engineering school, like I said, was all about, you know, no right answer, just think your way through it. Chiropractic school and, and most medical schools, it's just memorization, right? Just what bones are there? What arteries are there? And it was the, the test. I was like, man, this is simple. All I got to do is, is memorize stuff. And it was, it was very different. And, uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Became, became a chiropractor. And um, I knew when I was at the University of Maryland going to engineering that I loved golf, right? Uh, I worked at the golf course there, fell in love with it at Maryland. I became a scratch golfer when I was in Maryland. So I became a pretty good golfer. And when I went to chiropractic school, I was like, all right, I love this. I go, but the dream, again, talking about doing something you love would be, why not be a chiropractor for just golfers? And everybody told me I was crazy. But, uh, you know, five years later, I had a practice with over 3,000 golfers from all over the world. And uh, I built a practice called Advantage Golf in Washington, D.C. area where I grew up. And uh, um, it, it went crazy. And I, I think part of that was luck. I think a lot of success has to do with luck, too. Um, I started my practice in 1996. You know who else started in 1996? You guys know? I do. Mike, do you know? Mike's an MMA guy. No, I, I just watch people Mr. beat each other up. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Tiger Woods started in 1996. I, I tell you, I just, I think I got lucky because when Tiger started, everybody was like, man, this guy's different. Like, look, at he's like an athlete. Like, does anybody know anything about this athletic development? I was really one of the only people in the world really focusing on that. And uh, so I say I should write Tiger a check every day because it, it really he sparked this entire industry and I was just the right place at the right time and started getting a lot of players and uh, and then the rest is history you know in uh, 2000 I was like I said in the Washington D.C. area a young top one, 100 golf instructor the youngest golf instructor to be top 100 uh, came to my area in Baltimore Maryland at Kays Valley his name is Dave Phillips he built an incredible learning center there. And one day he brought this nine-year-old in to see me. And he was like, this is a really important client of mine. Um, I'd love for you to put him on a conditioning program. So I went through, his dad and him showed up. 
took them through a whole the 3D biomechanics stuff that I was doing a lot of research on, took them through the physical testing. And lo and behold, the dad was the CEO of Titleist. And that was Peter Uline, who's now on the live tour, right? And uh, uh, it, it basically, uh, Wally Uline, the CEO, was like, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And he was like, he looked at Dave and I, and he was like, guys, I don't know if you understand this. He goes, but, you know, we sell our primary products, golf balls. We also sell golf clubs. He goes, but the average golfer loses five to six golf balls every time they play. And he goes, uh, we own over 50% of the ball market. He goes, we're always looking for things to extend the life of golfers, make them play longer, enjoy the game more, because if they do that, it's billions of dollars. And he goes, I love what you're doing and we'd like to help. And it turned into this great consulting arrangement. And then basically in 2002, he approached Dave and I and said, hey, we've got this facility in San Diego. I'm, I'm curious, you know, all these other sports teams take care of their players physically. We don't do that. And I'm curious if you guys would like to help us do that. So we, as consultants, helped design this Titleist Performance Institute. And he turned around after we designed it and he said, I got a deal for you. He goes, I'll build it. I love it. He goes, if you guys quit your jobs and come run this. And he had to twist our arms. And next thing you know, now Dave and I became the head of health and fitness and performance for, for Titleist. And we've been there ever since. 2003 in San Diego, a beautiful 33-acre facility. We're actually under construction right now doing a $15 million upgrade, which is pretty, pretty awesome. And, and Talos has been such a great partner. I'm always interested in research and development, and it's led us into some really cool stuff. And now, you know, it was kind of interesting. ESPN was doing, they did a, 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 a study on sports science centers and everybody looked at us as golf center, but we were treating lots of different athletes as well. And we get lots of cool toys there, lots of technology. And uh, we're now ranked as one of the top five sports centers, sports science centers in the world. So not just golf, but baseball and tennis and football. We see all the all the above. That's kind of how I got here. It is a very cool, inspirational story. Two take homes that I would say for the listeners is um, number one, Greg is part cyborg, so I can attest to his his hard working that I've never seen anything quite like vampire. It. They call um, me the vampire. Yeah, I mean, you were teaching a, a course virtually in China till till probably a couple hours ago overnight, right? Um, and then two is. I don't want the people to get the impression to start bringing your nine-year-olds to us for biomechanical evaluation, unless your dad <laughs> is the old, CEO of old, a major. Yes. Come on, man. We, we yeah, unless your father is the CEO of a major, major corporation and wants to build something like TPI, wait till they're a little older than nine. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let me ask you this, Greg: How has your engineering background helped you develop systems for problem solving, training, treatment, et cetera? Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a great story. So uh, obviously, uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Greg Cook, uh, founder of FMS, uh, in 1996, he also started as well. And he actually came up to my facility. He was doing a lecture in Baltimore. That's when I first saw him. And he had like 30 tests that he was trying to come up with this functional movement screen. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I loved the way his brain thought, right? And him coming with these movement screens. And if I fast forward, at one point we decided, I was like, I want to do like a functional movement screen for health, for people in pain. And Gray was like, hey, I've kind of been working on something called the SFMA, right? This is a, a medical version of our FMS. He's like, I think you'll like it. And I was like, cool, but can I check it out? And he, he showed me what he was working on. And I always say like, Gray is like Henry Ford, right? So he, and it was like, he was like, hey, I got this cool idea and it's, it's called an automobile. And I'm like, what's an automobile? And he's like, hey, let me, let me take it for a test drive. And we get in it and it's cool. It starts to drive, but then the front tire falls off and then smoke starts coming out. And I was like, hey, this is pretty cool, but there's some problems with your car, right? 
So what I do is I take it and I, I kind of take my engineering brain and I go, okay, let's just, let's just put out the roadmap of like, you know, how, how do you, how do you build this so that there's no holes? There's no mistake. And that's kind of what I do. Right. So I take things, I pick them apart. I call myself the juice extractor. Like if you've got something really good, I can extract the juice from you and then put it in something that will preserve it and make sure that it stays there. And I think that's what I learned from engineering, right. Is create these, you know, if you guys are familiar with the SFMA, if you're watching this, I'm the bastard who made the flow charts, right? So that's, you know, some people hate that. Some people love that, but that's, that's my brain right there is, is those systems. Very cool. So speaking of systems, you talked about some of the tech, like 3d motion capture, force plates, high-speed video. How much has that uh, changed your approach in terms of preparing athletes from the early days and, and then even till now? And then the second part of that question is where does the art of coaching still fit in when you still, when you have all that tech Rick, at your Rick, disposal? Rick. Yeah, great question. So first of all, I always like to say, you know, uh, we work in all different sports. I know you guys do as well. And I always feel like golf and probably Formula One are the most advanced when it comes to technology. And I say that because if you look at most sports like baseball, football, basketball, those sports are run by owners. I mean, really, those are the guys with money. And, the, and, and if you look at the owner's budgets, the biggest budget is for players, right? Their player budgets are enormous, right? Their development budgets are pretty small and their research budgets are pretty small compared to their player budgets. Well, in golf and like in Formula One, we don't have owners, we have manufacturers. Manufacturers don't have monstrous player budgets, they have monstrous R&D budgets, right? So it allows us to get all kinds of cool technology. And that's what's really cool about being there at Tylos is we're always trying to figure out the tools that we can use to learn new things and gain better advantages on the competition, right? And so when I got there, you know, it was kind of like, hey, let's let's go figure out what's how we can learn as much as information as possible. And the other really cool thing about um, the golf world in Tylos is most places as they learn stuff, they try and keep it. You know, like I'm sure, Eric, when you were with the Giants, if there was something that was like the secret sauce, they're like, don't tell anybody. Right. We got we see this in all the sports. Right. Um, but Tylos was like well, why would we keep this source? Like tell everybody because we'll make them play better and they'll buy more golf balls, right? So it's been really uh, unique that we anything we learn, we can actually teach and do stuff. So the technology has allowed us to understand how athletes move, how they create power, how they transfer power, how they create force. I, I always say, if you're going to work with an athlete, you got to know what, why, and how, right? You got to know what they're doing to do that. You can use your eyes, video cameras. We can use advanced biomechanics, 3D motion capture. Those are all tells me what the athlete's doing, right? Then I kind of want to know how they're doing it. How they're doing it is usually coming from ground reaction forces. That's your force plates, pressure plates. Let's me know how they push from the ground and how those torques are created and how it makes the athlete move. And then the why, something that we specialize here is probably the physical. You know, this is why they move the way they move, maybe mental, what they're thinking. But all of those pieces, the what, why, and how, the technology can help you as a coach understand those things faster and more accurately, right? Now, what's really important in my mind is the technology is not really for the athlete, it's for the coach. And that, that's a big mistake that a lot of people tell you. They get all these cool technology and they give it to the client. It's like going to get an MRI and the doctor goes, here's your, here's your scans. People would be like, hey, this is cool. I, I don't know how to read this, right? The MRI is for the doctor. The doctor then takes that and tells the client what they have. That's the same thing with technology. I feel like you should get technology if you need help diagnosing and figuring out what's going on, right? So the tools are for you. Not They're not a marketing tool for your clients. You can have all the greatest technology, but if you don't know what you're doing, nobody's going to come see you, right? Now, the, like you said, the art of coaching. To me, the art of coaching is 
how do you take that that information, become a better coach, and now deliver it in third to fifth grade terms? I always feel like the key of great coaching is anybody can understand what you're doing. A lot of people get technology, and Eric, Mike, you guys have seen these people. It's like they they speak a foreign language, and the coach, the the, the players, or the athletes don't know what the hell they're talking about. I feel like you want to take all that complex stuff, get the diagnosis, and then remember, talk to third grade. And that to me is the art of creating the relationship, making the understanding, and then the, the buy-in from the athlete, and they're all in. Now, because I think the technology gives the athlete a lot of buy-in that you're not just guessing, you're actually using data and you understand exactly where the problem is. Yeah, I mean, I see it all the time now that it's become a lower price points that, that you're baseball school down the street can start getting some of this stuff because I work a lot in baseball is that, you know, the knock that I'm getting when players come to me is they say, look, I went to this place and they did this hour evaluation on me. But, you know, when I got to actual my training program, I was doing the same thing as everybody else. Right. It didn't actually impact my program at all. And then they never went back to test it. By the way, it's horrible. That's horrendous. Right. Yeah. And 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 they don't retest it because that actually puts your feet to the fire, right? That tests your work. And you know, like you always talk about three motion capture being the bullshit, you know, detector, right? It's the same, it's the same thing with a movement screen, right? How many times do you see people do a movement screen and they still give them the same workout? You know, like what did you do the screen for? Just to say you did a screen? Like, you know what I mean? Like everything should be customized based on this. Um, again, that's just saying that I'm not sure if the coach or the trainer really understands how to interpret the data. Yeah, it was just a tack on for their evaluation. Yeah. Another big problem we've seen in sports, which I, I think is really interesting, is is you know, like I said, I've been I've had the pleasure of going to so many different sports federations, leagues, and um, I always tell a story. I, I was invited uh, in China to the Table Tennis Association and. I don't know anything about table tennis, but I know they haven't lost a gold medal in like forever, right? So I know they're they're the best. So I I go out to um, their 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 testing facility in Beijing and I sit down and they have ten coaches that come out. There's they're supposedly ten of the best table tennis coaches in the world, right? And they look at me and they go, "Thanks for coming. You know, we know you're a sports science guy. Uh, there are ten things that." we think are the most important for looking at for table tennis. Could you help us measure these 10 things? And I'm like, perfect, what are they? And they lay them down. And then me and a couple other nerds go away and we try and come back and give them what they want, right? That makes sense. Let me tell you about baseball, right? Baseball, even football a little bit. Like baseball, it's like you go to a, a, a team and here's what they did. They go, I love data. I love technology. I think this is great. And we see other sports doing this. So they go hire a technology person and they sit the technology person down, the coaches, and they go, so what should we measure? And the technology person goes, you're asking me? Like, I'm a technology guy. I don't know anything about baseball. Like, you're supposed to tell me. And it's almost like they put the cart before the horse. And now we get all these data scientists, technology, uh, and data coming to the coaches that the coaches don't even know what the heck it is. They're like, I don't even know what this is. But the data person didn't want to admit that they didn't know anything about baseball. So they just said, hey, this is something that I was really good at in track and field. I think you might like it too. And it's you get all kinds of crap out there. And it's not crap for the data is not crap data is great i just don't know if it applies to baseball right so we got to be careful who's driving the technology absolutely so um shifting gears a little bit about about some of your influences and i know i've heard you speak about uh the time you got to to, to learn from dr schmidt about motor, motor learning and, one of the greatest, um, one of the greatest men in the world yep and his up. his schema for motor learning and, and how does that apply beyond just obviously for skill acquisition, but also where a strength coach, personal trainer can apply that into their fitness programming. 
Yeah, so I had the pleasure of traveling the globe with Dr. Schmidt and Dr. Lee, two of the most published researchers on motor learning in the world for almost three and a half years. And I'm telling you, I learned probably more with those guys in those three years than I have in almost all my career. And, you know, they were all their, all their research was on motor learning, creating a motor skill, right? From playing a piano to throwing a baseball, it's all skill stuff. And I kept asking them too, I'm like, couldn't, can you apply this to workouts, to fitness? Like, because people are trying to learn new motor patterns. Like, if, if you if you've lost hip extension and, and now your hip doesn't extend so what do you do you substitute lumbar extension and now you herniate your disc in your lower back we can go rehab that lower back but if you now still have a motor pattern that you use lumbar extension instead of hip extension we have to break a motor pattern right and i'm like it's this seems like it should apply the exact same and he was like absolutely there is no difference right is that the way humans learn is the way humans learn whether it's learning how to extend your hip with lumbar stability or learning how to use an ATM machine, it doesn't matter, humans learn the same. And what's amazing to me is there's so much research on motor learning that is violated every day in the gyms all over the world, right? You know, from the, from the basic concepts of muscles don't have memory, it's your brain, from trying to think you're training muscles versus training the brain is very, very different. And again, listen, if you're just trying to get stronger, if you wanna be bodybuilder, okay, you're training muscle, right? There's no motor pattern, just getting stronger. I'm talking about function, right? If you're trying to function better, you want to, uh, you know, your movement patterns improve, that's motor skills, right? So just because they have the mobility, right? Just because they have the range of motion, just because they have the strength does not mean that they're going to fire their motor pattern sequencing in the appropriate way. And, and to me, that's, it's like the finishing, the finishing of your rehab, right? Is to make sure that the athlete doesn't need you to coach them, that they understand how to function subconsciously to be able to do this. And all those motor learning principles, I don't know how many of those you want to go through, but we can go through a bunch of those are, I feel like one of the most valuable things for a trainer. It should be almost required learning. Now, I know some of that got misinterpreted. Just to give one example is I know with Malcolm Gladwell's book talking about the 10,000 hour rule when that was kind of an extrapolation, right, of... Um, of research that was done that's it's not quite accurate you know if you took you 10,000 hours to learn every time you did a deadlift no one would ever do a deadlift well okay so that that's 10,000 hours was to be an expert right so if you wanted to be an expert he was saying that, and most of the research will say and, and I think what's good about this is is an, an expert it'd be like it's like the difference between a formula one driver and you can drive your car right listen I think both the three of us have probably had 10,000 hours behind a wheel would you agree? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's how long it takes me to commute to work in New Jersey. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're in New York. So, so I look at this and I go, listen, there's been days where I should. Ready to go drive formula one. Right. So I've had 10,000 hours plus, but I'm not a formula one driver because I wasn't trying to apply the skill to a very specific sports application. Right. So what we know is that the the 10,000 hour rule I love, which says to me is you're not going to become a pro in six months. Okay. It takes time to develop and every sport has different, you know, averages of how long it takes to develop. And to do it, you have to do what's called deliberate practice, deliberate learning. You have to literally try and make sure that those, the hours you're doing are the right type of hours, the right type of practice. And I, I also feel like it's important to think of this way is we're not trying to become experts, right? I'm not, I don't want you to become the expert at movement, but I want normal movement, right? So if an expert takes 10,000 hours, 
So let me, yeah. let me ask you this, Greg. Um, so it seems like, you know, the idea of de deliberate practice versus exposure, right? I mean, like you said, anybody mm -hmm. can drive a car. But yeah. like I've done that too. I'm like, how the hell did I get from here to Rhode Island? I didn't remember driving. <laughs> so it's, it's not about exposure. It's about specificity and, and being deliberate with the task at hand. 100%. It's like the difference between throwing and pitching, right? Anybody can throw a ball against a wall, but to throw it with velocity through a strike zone, if there's rules, there's consequences, stuff like that, it's just different. Now, as they start getting better, we start creating drills. And this is deliberate practice and things to improve your skills, specifically uh, created by a coach to induce uh, development and learning. And sometimes it's not as enjoyable. It's more repetitious over there, but that's, that's what it takes. If there's only like a, some sort of said principle that, you know, allowed that to happen. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so let's keep going with the motor learning thing. So now one of the big yep. knocks on, on the corrective exercise world is that, well, it doesn't stick. Right. And I think a lot of that is just poor application of that. But um, if, if basically what we're looking for, and we had Charlie Weingroff on a couple, a couple <laughs> episodes ago talking about, can you at least create that window of change? And then from Wait, there, did, he have, did, he the mohawk, did he have the mohawk going? He did. Uh, yeah, he had that all going. Yeah. He actually wrapped the Humpty dance. So you're going to have to top that. <laughs> okay. It's not going to happen. But go ahead. Keep going. Back to your question. Okay. So, so with that, like, okay, so I've made a change. I taught you how to get to, to, to use your reference before I taught you how to get in a hip extension. Like, okay, how long is that going to stick? Okay. And then once that stick, yeah. how do I reinforce that? And then when does that then become a habit? So you're, you're, you're saying exactly what I just said, just a little better, which is basically understanding that once you have the ability, does not mean you have the motor skill, right? So I think a lot of people go, oh, these corrective exercises didn't do anything. I'm like, what were you using them for? Were you using them to just get them range of motion or were you using it to build a motor pattern? Because those are different, right? And you have to do both if you want this to see the, the value of this. So once we, first of all, you have to create the ability Right. So a lot of these corrective ones is giving you the ability to extend your hip, giving you the ability to do whatever you're working on. Once they have the ability, now you need to apply the motor learning skills to create the motor pattern. Right. This is like going to random practice and making sure it's feel based, not form based and all the, all the rules that apply and trying to reduce your feedback. Right. So air detection, learning systems for your clients to make sure they know if they're doing it wrong or right. These are the ways that you release your client out into the world feeling safe. And we totally screw that up by overcoaching, don't we? Like I said, whoever talks the most loses when it comes to motor learning, right? So as a, like young coaches, they're always talking, trying to, you know, after every rep, giving them feedback where the experienced coaches, you know, they don't talk a lot, but when they talk, it matters. If that makes sense. So yeah. And me, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, so uh, one of the things that you had mentioned was sort of random, sort of random practice and the idea um, I forget what the name of the book was, uh, but it was out the, the idea of interleaving those skills, like, you know, versus block learning versus interleaving, where block learning, you do an A skill, a B skill, and then a C skill, and you only practice it in that order. But at some point, if you really want to own that information, you have to go CBA or BCA, you have to do it at random. Do you, do you feel like that is, is, is accurate in that world or how, what do you, what's Man, your thoughts I, on that? Mike, I can talk about this for 20 hours. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to refer to Dr. Schmidt. So, so. Listen, Dr. Schmidt, he, he had, he had a, before he passed away, he knew he was going to die. He had a disorder and he was wheelchair bound. And I asked him to come in and I was like, can I do an interview with you? Cause I knew he didn't have much time. And I actually interviewed him 10 days before he died on video. And 
I got to the point where I said to him, I said, hey, I'm just curious, when is it okay to use block practice? Like, tell me when, when can you apply block practice or random practice? And I swear to you, I, we never put this out because his, his, his speech was a little impaired and I just didn't think it'd be great to, to publish this, but I should at some point. He looks at the camera and he says, there's no way you're going to get me to say that you should ever do block practice before I die. Which is like I, I I'll never forget that statement. Now I, I totally disagree, right? And I and I think there are places where you can use block practice, but that's just how passionate one of the leading researchers in the world was about the difference between random and block. And I and here's why. Let me explain what where his where he's coming from, and then I can tell you where I where I would use block versus random. So listen, mathematics is the easiest way to understand this, right? So if I said, hey, are you guys good with with multiplication? You know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm deferring to Mike here. Uh, I'm deferring to Eric on this. I got <laughs> 10 fingers and that's all I can do right now. So, I okay. Mean, so if I, if I said, I said, what's 12 times 15, who's got it? 12 times 15. Don't use your calculator. 130. Use a pa paper if you need to. 12 times 15. Eric? 180. 180. Eric, Giants, beat the Patriots again. What is going on? See, that's it. I, dude, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. <laughs> He's been hitting the head too many okay, so times on that, Matt. Listen, most people, if you give them a, a multiplication like that, they're, oh, I, I got to figure this out. And both of you guys had that look. It took you a little bit. We finally got to 180. Okay, let's let's practice multiplication. Let's do it again. What's 12 times 15? 180. Wow, you guys are getting better, right? <laughs> All right, what's 12 times 15? Now, listen, I can keep doing block practice 12 times 15. Do you think you're learning math? No, we're memorizing the structure of the conversation. You had previous information. You already knew the solution. You didn't have to go try and do the math in your head. Like the first time you went, your eyes went up and you started trying to do math in your head, right? And it was terrible. The second time, second time <laughs> you were just like, the second time was like, is that the same numbers he just asked me? Like, hey, that's that sounds like 180. Now, it's obvious that if you just did block practice with mathematics, you're going to suck at math unless the, the, the quiz is 12 times 15, then you're going to be amazing, Right. But let's take that to the same thing. Let's take that to free throws. Okay, so let's say uh, you're Shaquille O'Neal and you're struggling with free throws. So what's the what's the normal thought? Is I'm just going to go do a million free throws in a row, right? That's doing 12 times 15 a million times in a row. You're still going to suck at doing free throws because the first free throw you practiced one, but now if you hit the rim, the short the short side of the rim, you're like I need more energy. Well, now you have previous information that you didn't have the first time. And you use that previous information to dial in your speed and maybe I dial in my trajectory. But when you go to do a shot, it, like, like any other shot, like it, it doesn't help you with your shooting skills, if that makes sense. So the best way to learn is random. Like if I get on a bike, if I go and I follow the right, I get up and next thing you know, I usually follow the left because you're trying to you're trying to adjust and it's and you never know where the bumps are going to come. And that's the the way humans learn is is through random practice. So you know, uh, I'll tell you one more great story and then I'll talk about block practice. Uh, Patrick Harrington who's probably one of the hottest players on the champions tour right now, Ryder cup captain, three-time major champion. He had a, a great friend growing up, one of his best friends. And his best friend is on the challenge tour, which is like the mini tour for the European tour. And they came into TPI one time, Patrick already won his three majors, him and his friend. And Patrick goes off to get club fit and the, Hey, now that he's gone, can I talk to you in your office? So I, well, in my office and I'm like, what's up? He goes, I just want to tell you about some frustrations I've had. And I, I just, I've never told this to anybody, but I think maybe you can help me. I'm like, what's up? He goes, listen, he goes, I grew up with Patrick. He goes, you know, we, we practice all the time together. And, and I was always better than him. I used to beat him. And then, you know, 
now look at him. You know, everybody knows him. Nobody knows who I am. And I go, well, you know, sometimes guys bloom late. You know, that's that that's very normal. And he's like, no, he goes, that's not the problem. He goes, the problem is, is I still practice more than he does. Like I put in more work, more effort. And I don't understand why he's having success. And I go, you practice more than Patrick Harrington? Because listen, I worked with Patrick for 20 years. And I'm like, I don't know anybody who practices more than Patrick Harrington. And I'm like, there's no way you practice more. And he goes, Greg, for example, this morning, he goes, we came out here early. And we practice putting. He goes, we do this all the time. He goes, I will go out there on the putting green and I will putt 100 putts from five feet and then 100 putts from seven feet and then 100 putts from nine feet. Like I'll hit 300 putts. And at that same time, he goes, it takes me like 20 minutes to do this. Patrick just has one ball and he just putts different holes. Like he probably makes 30, 40 putts and I do 300 and he's a better putter than me. And I go, well, now you just explained everything, right? You're doing block practice. So you did three putts and he did 30. He goes, no, 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 I did 300. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. You did three, you did three math formulas. You just did it a hundred times each, which means there's absolutely no learning going on. So I had to have this conversation with them of random versus block. And it, it always comes down, if you look at the best athletes in the world, sometimes they don't even know they're doing this. They are randomizing their practice when they're learning. Now, when is block practice good? Okay, let's say the three of us, we're gonna have a free throw contest, right? Like I said, if we're gonna have a contest of 12 times 15, dude, all we gotta do is practice 12 times 15 and I'm gonna be a rock star. If we're gonna do a free throw contest in an hour and Eric just does free throws and Mike, you and I are all over the court hitting shots, in an hour, Eric's gonna kick our ass because he's got this dialed in right now from block practice. So block practice is great at performing right now in practice. Two days later, Eric's probably not gonna be as good as hitting shots around the court as you and I are because we practice all these random ones. But in an hour, he's going to win the free throw contest. So think about like before you play, you know, if you look at the PGA Tour on the driving range, they're doing block shots. And people are like, well, why are they doing block practice on the range? I'm like, because they're about to go perform. They're about to go try and do free throws. They're not trying to learn anything before the event. When they're trying to learn in practice, it's very different how we do random practice, right? So block practice is great if you need to perform well in practice, but not learning, just perform well in practice. Number two, it's also great if you're learning a new skill. The first time you ever try something, you need to understand what you're doing, right? So if I say, hey, I want you to do a bird dog, but don't arch your back, right? It's okay to do five or 10 block practice ones just to make sure that you understand what you're supposed to do before I go randomize it. Before I try and make you fall off the bike, I need to make sure you understand you're supposed to stay on the bike and make sure we're on the same page. So block practice, I think, is great at learning a new skill. So I think it's great at learning a new skill, and I think it's good at warming up to go perform today. Other than that, the research is very clear and Dr. Schmidt made it very clear. You should always do random practice if you wanna learn. Wow, I see a lot of carryover into what we do. Cause I, obviously the, the, the easy takeaway is how this applies to sport, whether, you know, how I'm gonna go, you know, learn how to hit a baseball. But yeah. I think there's not enough of it in, in our world, whether it's on the fitness side in terms of preparation, <laughs> Um, in preparing you for actually going out and playing your sport or, or even on the rehab side. So I have a, a pro soccer player I was working with this morning and what we're trying to, I trying to explain to him, trying to build up your layers of reactivity. First, it's yeah. okay. You're going to run breakdown at the cone. Then it's, you're going to run. You don't know when you're going to break down and then you, you don't know which direction you're going to break down and then building up those layers. Yeah. And well, I, I think, think in our, re, our return to play protocols miss a lot of that. Don't, doesn't it? Absolutely. There's two, two very important things, right? If you want to apply this to your exercise. So number one, and you guys hear this all the time is somebody will say, Hey, what's my, what's your favorite exercise for hip mobility or what's your favorite exercise for core strength type of stuff. If you're going to randomize your workouts, 
you can't have one exercise. It has to be multiple exercises, right? So if I'm going to work on hip extension, right, I, I need to give you four, five, six exercises that you're going to randomize those exercises. Instead of one exercise and doing 10 reps or two sets, right? That's block. That's block practice. That's basically, I'm doing 12 times 15 again, 20 times, right? Instead, I might say, okay, here's a bridge, here's rolling prone to supine, here's a bird dog, here's a, a deadlift. These are all extension patterns of the hip that I can randomize my, so I can do one or two reps of each and then keep going. I, I, I wanna keep changing the brain to have to relearn the skill. I don't wanna keep doing the same one. That's really, really, really important. And then the second most important thing is air detection software, right? The client has to know if they screwed up, right? Like if you're on the mound and you're throwing, you throw a pitch and you were trying to throw a fastball high with spin and it just, it keeps hovering low over the plate. You need to be able to air detect what's going on and be able to make adjustments. It's the same thing in fitness. Like, are you confident that they're doing that exercise properly and they can feel what it feels like to do the right motor pattern? So you need to make sure you train your client. All right, this is what hip extension feels like when you don't use your lumbar spine. And as a trainer, I'm always sitting there watching them. And if I say, listen, you got, you got two jobs. Do the exercise and try and maintain the feel we talked about. But most importantly is air detect. If you did it wrong, just go, man, that was bad. My bad coach. Uh, let me fix it. And I'm going to watch you. If you screw up and I see you screw up and you go, oh, that one was bad. Dude, that's awesome. You're air detecting. You're learning. But if you screw up and you don't say anything, well, now I haven't done my job because now you can't air detect. And now you're just practicing bad patterns again. So random exercise, multiple exercises for each function you're trying to do, and then create the air detection system. Those are the two things that are missed all over the world for training. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the TPI model, because I, I think there's there's elegance in that, that that we don't see enough of in other sports in terms of having, there's medical, there's, there's the skill, and then there's the performance <laughs> side of it, and how we work across silos in between those. And Tell me kind of how that came to be and where you see that working well, obviously in oh, yeah. golf yeah. Uh, and where it's yeah. not working well. Yeah, well, you just said the keyword there, silos, right? So typically in sports, you've got your three silos. You've got, you've got health, medical, you've got strength conditioning, and you've got coaches, right? And baseball is perfect for this. I mean, I, I can't tell you, we've done in-services for 16 of the MLB teams, and I can't tell you how many times I go in there. And health hates strength and conditioning. Medical, and they don't like each other, right? And they don't talk to each other. And neither one of them talk to the coaches because the coaches don't even believe that this helps. So you got three total silos. You got a player, a pitcher walks in to the coach and the coach goes, we got to work on this front side. This Your front side's soft. And you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll just go to the gym and talk to the fitness guys. Coach doesn't come with them. They just walk into the gym and they go to the strength conditioning coach and they go, hey, I, I, I want to work. I want to work on my pitching. The, the fitness says, perfect. Let's do an evaluation. They do evaluation. They go, Dude, your biggest problem is your is your shoulder strength. We got to work on your shoulder strength. And you're like shoulder strength. My coach said it was my front side. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna go to the medical just get checked out. So they go to the medical and the medical person does an evaluation. They go, dude, your neck, man. You're, this is all about your neck. Your neck's the problem, right? I mean, how many times have you seen this, right? So now the player's going, okay. Coach says it's my front leg. Strength conditioning says it's my right shoulder strength. And medical says it's my neck. And you're going, two of these people are wrong and don't know what the hell they're talking about. And they're all part of my team. Like, I don't know if I can trust these. I don't know what's going on. Now you got the little angel and the devil that pops up, right? You got the angel that goes, it's okay. They're, they're all right. And the devil's like, no, two of them don't know what they're talking about. Maybe all three of them don't know what you're talking about. And they get doubt. So what do they do? 
they go to driveline or they come to us or they go to you guys they they leave their team and because they're like i'm getting i'm getting 13 different messages and the main problem is they're in silos right the 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 team is in silos and they're not acting like a team so our philosophy is very simple we believe the sphere of influence that goes around a player coach medical and fitness need to work as a cohesive unit right this is like we still stole this from formula one there's no way you're going to win a formula one race without the driver the pit crew the management all talking to each other i mean the the freaking guy's got a microphone talking to the pit crew and when he pulls into the pit stop the fitness let's call that the pits the pit crew is your fitness model they have two seconds you know how do they do in two seconds what they need to do without 100 understanding what's happening with the car so the coach is literally telling them as they're driving this is what's happening so when they pull in they work on exactly what the coach is working on and the car performs great so take that analogy to sports the athlete's the car right the coach is the driver and the medical and fitness that's pit crew right with they don't communicate with each other i don't understand how you're working as a team and the car never performs great and the other thing that's really important for strength and, and conditioning to understand is you could be standing on the track waving your arms going dude there's smoke coming out of your tailpipe you got a flat tire if the coach the driver doesn't turn the wheel into the pit stop it's not coming to you it just keeps going right so without this constant communication and this teamwork approach, it just doesn't work. And it's so obvious when you go to teams that suck, they're siloed. When you go to teams that are great, it's it's obvious. That's what they do. It seems like the, uh, the, the big limitation here is just the fact that they aren't working as one cohesive unit. And it's, it's all these different individuals that are trying to, you got to wonder how, let me ask you this, how much of that you think is ego? Well, it, it's even worse. Okay, so communication is for sure the problem, right? Half the time they hate each other, but they're saying the same thing. They just don't even know they're saying the same thing. They actually 100% agree with each other. They just aren't communicating with each other. And ego is not really the issue. It's job preservation, right? So a lot of times it's kind of like, sometimes I hate to say this, sometimes they don't want people to know if they don't know what they're doing or they don't want to rock the boat because they're just trying to keep their job. But you know, to me, how do you keep your job? Win the World Series. Win in the, the Super Bowl, that's how you keep your job, right? Yeah, success, right? That always helps. That's, that always helps. Kind of switching gears, when we look at rotational sports like tennis, golf, softball, baseball, <laughs> what are the similarities and, and what are the differences? You know, uh, obviously we do movement screens for each of these sports, right? And uh, we, have, we have certain core movement screens that I don't even care what the sport is, need to do this, right? So there are certain fundamentals, and I always get back to style versus efficiency, right? When you go to most coaches, most coaches have what we call a style bias. Like once again, I'll just say, let's say you're, well, let's go hitting. Let's say you're a hitter and you go to a coach, the coach might go, well, I love Aaron Judge. I mean, look what he's doing. It's unbelievable. So they film you, they put you split screen, they put Aaron. That's what you should look like when you swing. That's style-based. I want you to look like Aaron Judge, right? Or I want you to look like Otani when you're pitching, blah, blah, blah. This is what we want you to see. Well, when you do style-based coaching, you're assuming that the person in front of you can physically do what that athlete you just put up on the screen can do. How many people have the physical abilities of, let's say, Tiger Woods to do his swing, right? I mean, how Tiger Woods doesn't even have that physical ability anymore, right? So I, most people would need surgery to do what Mike Trout is doing or what Aaron Judge is doing, right? But still the coaches put that model up there and it's a frustration because the athlete's like, I can't do it. I don't know what's wrong with me mentally. It's nothing mental. You just can't physically do it. And that's the worst type of coaching is 
you, you literally should be trying to figure out what's the most efficient swing for you to do, the efficient way to pitch. And that's based on what you can physically do, right? So, you know, I, I always feel like if we go and look at athletes, rotary athletes, and we take away style, just get rid of style. There's a million different ways to pitch. There's a million different ways to hit. We now know that most of these athletes create power and transfer power through their body almost exactly the same. Right. So if I take a look at like Jim Furyk, who's got one of the ugliest swings on, on PGA Tour history and Tiger Woods, one of the most prettiest swings, I could tell who is who from the Goodyear blimp. But if I put them under motion capture and I look at how they create power and how they transfer power, Mike, it's like identical. I mean, it's absolutely identical. So hmm. rotary athletes create power, transfer power, almost exactly the same. The only the only subtle differences that we see throwing versus striking. There's a couple. Obviously, there's the arm component that comes in. Right. So obviously your tennis serve your baseball pitching, and even the windmill fast spits up all, there's going to be a couple nuances, differences there that there would, there would be um, different than where similarities like ground strokes, forehand, backhand, golf, hockey, te- um, uh, uh, baseball swinging, those are all almost identical, right? Now, there are some movement unique things. Overall, rotary athletes, how they create power and transfer power, it's, it's almost identical. So as we're winding down, I got I got one question. We're gonna go back to the to the nine year old that you, that kind of got this all started. It, you you also have a very cool way uh, that you go about long term athletic development with the TPI Juniors program. I remember one of the the, yeah. the first times we connected, we spoke together at the, one of the FMS summits, and you did a great presentation on on junior development. So um, how do we how are we currently screwing that up? um in in both the skill side and the performance side with young kids and and what are some simple things we can look for and and do to change that well i'll I'll make this real simple so um one of the developers of long-term athletic development or the developers a guy by the name of istvan bali istvan bali is on our advisory board at tpi he was the director of of of, uh uh, sports for the hungarian uh, olympic committee back in the day he actually defected to canada in the uh, montreal games in the 80 games um, with a lot of guys like Tudor Bampa from Romania, a lot of people defected to Canada. That's why Canada has been like a leader in LTAD for a long time now. But Istvan says early bloom, early rot, right? And I, I like and that is just the that sums up everything that's wrong with junior sports, right? Is I want to win the 13 year old junior golf championships, right? Guys, tell me who won last year the 13 year old world junior golf championships. Can't do exactly. It. Nobody cares. Let's get let's go over. Who won the Little League World Series last year? Can you name it? I mean, that's a big deal in baseball, right? Nobody cares, right? You know what you cares? Who won the World Series? We know the Braves won. I would like you basically who won the Masters? We know who won the Masters. We know who won. That's what matters, right? For some reason, people have in their head that it's more important to win the 11 year old championship, 12 year old championships coming from a company that scouts and pays athletes millions of dollars. We don't care what you did when you were 12. We really don't. What's more important is that you are developing into an athlete that can win the masters or win the U S open. So if you think about it, right, everything you're doing to win the 11 year old, 12 year old world championships is probably hurting you from winning the masters, right? Because the key to youth sports, youth development that we've seen is that you develop the athlete first and then you develop the sports specific skills second. Because the one thing we've learned is it's really almost impossible to go back in time. You've got one chance as a parent or as a coach to do this right. And we've learned that 
as kids age, it becomes much harder to turn them into athletes. We can, we can mold this clay so much better when they're young. So we create the athlete first, strength, power, endurance, explosiveness, all, all the stuff that, that goes into athletic development. And then you add the skills on. You know, I always, I always tell my coaches, I'm like, if you had the 12-year-old, let's say, junior golf champion, right? And then you had the 12-year-old decathlon winner of the world, right? Best athlete in the world. And you had to risk everything of, I'm going to take one of these kids and try and turn them into the master's champion. I'm going to tell you right now, the 12-year-old that's only played golf, that has won the 12-year-old championships, in my book, has no, I'm not even going to look at them. I'm going to take the decathlon and I'm going to turn them into Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, Scotty Shep, one of the best golfers in the world. Athlete first, sports-specific second. And that's just so ass backwards because it's all about college. Everybody wants a scholarship. You got to develop early. The colleges won't look at you. College is really about winning because if they don't win, the coaches get fired. So development's very difficult to find. And it's just, it, it's, it's slowly changing, but man, it's painful to watch. This is, Sorry, this this is, is I mean, I could talk about this for 20 days, but that, that's, that's so, so could we, we actually had Lee Taft on a couple episodes <laughs> while talking about just how yeah. broken the youth sports model is. And he had a, some really cool ideas on, on how we can change that. Um, yeah. But that, like we said, that is a whole nother episode into itself. Mike, anything before we wrap up? No, I mean, I could do this all day because uh, this is this is the stuff that I love uh, uh, learning from, you know, people like Greg and uh, Greg, I'm going to I'm going to hit you up after for some resources on this stuff, because uh, I'm really jazzed up on this. So um, but thank you cool. for your time. Uh, I've learned a ton uh, throughout this conversation and uh, we really appreciate it. I know you're you're somewhere on another part of the, the world and, and, you know, God knows what time it is right now. But uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on today. And, and Eric, I'll let you close this out, bud. Absolutely. Thank you again, Dr. Rose. As, well, as always, me, hey guys, always, before, before yeah. you close it, I just want to say, yeah. Hey, I, uh, I, I watched your guys, um, uh, principles on, on performance, um, video stuff. And I and just want to say great job guys. Uh, I love that. Um, and like I said, I'm a chronic learner and, uh, I, I, uh, I, I always enjoy watching you guys and uh, appreciate everything you guys do. Thanks for having me on. Uh, that means a lot coming from you again, Dr. Greg Rose. Um, go check them out. My TPI on base, you racket fit, all that good stuff. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been episode 11 of the principles of performance podcast. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like, and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.